Well, good morning, church family. We are uh, certainly glad to see you this morning. We have a really nice crowd. We're thankful for that. Um, I hate when preachers start their sermon with the story behind the sermon, and they spend 10 minutes of your time telling you why they thought of what they thought of. It just seems like a waste of time. And nevertheless, here I go. Um, I think it's important in this case for you to understand, because Alex and I, we, as you know, we plan our sermons out a year in advance. We just planned out next year's a couple of weeks ago. So we, um, we put a lot of thought and a lot of concern and, and care into what we're going to preach and building it around our annual theme. And we did that last year in preparation for this year. But we've said from the beginning of that, we've said it to you and we've said it to our elders, that you know we have to be flexible because sometimes things will happen and just the sermon just will not be appropriate uh, to address what's going on all around. And so we've come to one of those situations here this morning. Um, just, just for me personally, let me just tell you how I am. Because as you know by now, two years or so now, I'm, I'm kind of a private person. I'm not an open book like Alex is. Um, so it, it takes a little bit more for me to open up. So just, just to give you a little insight into the way I think sometimes. I find it really, um, what's the right word? Strange, odd, weird, Inappropriate seems too harsh, so I won't use that word, but um, I, I find it hard for me to, when I hear that a loved one of mine, friends of mine, extended, have lost a loved one, have lost somebody close to them. It, it may be by, you know, extension, a loss of my own, but it's not the same degree, right? You understand that. When I, when I hear that someone is, is dealing with that and they're suffering that, it's hard for me to just go about my day completely normal. And to just act like nothing's going on. It's hard for me to post a funny picture on Facebook. Knowing that they might be scrolling and will come across it. Because I know they're hurting. And so it's, it's hard for me to act like I'm not also hurting. If not for myself, then just sympathetically hurting. Compassionately hurting for them. So it's hard for me just to go about my normal routine. And so when we got the word late last night, or about 8 or so o'clock last night, that Amy had passed, um, it just, it didn't feel right preaching the sermon that was planned. So I I called Don Gregory and we talked about it and uh, we decided it was just the right thing to do. And so the slide behind me, the red, white, and blue logo of our congregation, it's the only slide that's carried over from what was supposed to be a sermon, a pre-election sermon. That was what was planned going all the way back to last year, just to get our minds spiritually right before we um, presumably go cast a vote. That's not going to happen. We're going to take that sermon. I'll re- repurpose it a little bit, and we'll do it next week as a post-election sermon. But this morning, it just feels like there's more important things to talk about. Because it is part of the job of your ministers to open the Bible with you every week, walk you through the Scripture, and find a way to use the Word of God to help you in whatever you're going through. It's our job to know you well enough to know a year in advance what kind of things you need us to focus on. And sometimes with hours notice to know what you need to hear and to talk about and to study from. So that's why we're changing the sermon this morning. Because I've only known Amy Fairchild for two years. Some of you have known her far longer than that. So your pain exceeds mine by many factors. Calvin's exceeds all of ours and his family. 
by many more factors than that. So there are people who are hurting. When Christians are hurting, God's Word is the comfort. So it is our responsibility to open God's Word and find the comfort therein. But it may interest you to know that the first book I turned to was not God's Word when I was thinking about what am I going to say this morning. The first book I opened was a songbook. Because once again, let me tell you a little bit about me. That's what I do. I, I, I get daunted very easily at a task. My wife will tell you the sight of an instruction manual to put together a grill. Gives me cold sweats, and I can't do it. Something that seems so humongous, I, I, I get overwhelmed by. I need to compartmentalize, break things up piece, piece by piece. So I know I need to turn to God's book. I know I need to turn to the Word of God for comfort. But it's a very thick book. It has a lot in it. And sometimes I just stare at that big book and I think I don't know where to begin. So what I do to focus my mind and to direct my thoughts to, in the first place is I open a songbook and I read poetry. I read beautiful words of spiritual comfort that are, that are based around the Word of God. And then by reading those songs, I start to think of verses and I start to think of texts and things that I can turn to to gain the real, eternal, consequential comfort. And as I was thinking about a death, my mind goes to, well, this is a Christian death. And for a Christian, there really is no such thing. It's just a new kind of life. And how that is possible, because he lives. And that's the song I thought of. And if you want to open your songbook to follow along, I'm going to have it on the screen and we're going to walk through it. It's number 464. I did not give Kevin enough time to prepare it, but that's all right. We're going to walk through the song as we go through the sermon as well, because he lives. Let me tell you, every one of us who is at least an adult has suffered a loss. We have all dealt with losing somebody, having to put someone in the ground. As Christians, we understand that in putting that body in the ground, that's all we're doing. That person who is a Christian who has died, we are only burying a body. And as I'll say in a little while, we're not burying a memory. We're not burying a soul. We're just burying a body. And that is actually a thought of comfort. It would only be a comfort. It is a comfort that is only possible because He who died lives again. Because He lives. I can watch that casket go six feet into the ground. Because He lives, I can visit it a year later when it's just a mound and a few sprigs of grass and flowers. Because He lives, I can visit it ten years later when it's just completely covered over by grass and the tombstone has become grimy with weather. Because He lives, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you can come back to it and it's still just a white stone over a former mound and a body underneath and I can have the confidence that the real person still lives too. Because he lives, I have just two thoughts for you. Because he lives, I can face that tomorrow of going to that graveside year after year. Because he lives, I can die. Because I tend to get introspective. I hear about other people dying and it reminds me of my own mortality. And I start to think about my own eventual death and i think because he lives i can die too those are your two quick thoughts that's all i have for you this morning and then we'll close let's ex let's consider them 
in some detail. The song goes, God sent his son. They called him Jesus. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him knowing that in so giving he would have to give his life. So through proxy, God gave the life of Jesus. Jesus still had to make the decision. He still had to walk the hill. He still had to go to the cross and lay his hands down and allow them to be executed. He still had to do that. But it was God who gave his son, John 3.16. God gave his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He went about doing good, as Peter said in Acts 10. He went about loving his enemies, healing the unhealable. We'll talk about one particular miracle in a minute. And to forgive those who are unworthy of it. He lived a perfect life. God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. Because I, through my sin, my selfishness, my ingratitude toward God, I turned my soul over to the custody of the devil. And were it not for him, my soul would still be in the custody of the devil. And were it not for him, when this body eventually dies, that soul will still belong to the devil forever and ever. But because he lives, he bought my soul back. And now when this body goes into the ground, he owns it, not the devil. And it goes to him forevermore. He has possession. He lived and died to buy my pardon. I didn't even quote the verses. Luke 19.10 is the previous one. The Son of Man come to seek and to save the lost. Mark 10.45 is the other one. How the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a, the King James says ransom, the word means a payback. I'll pay this to get this back, a soul for many. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove it. To prove that my Savior lives. We spent a whole class last quarter talking about just that. Building up to seeing the empty tomb. And my favorite of the gospel accounts that include the empty tomb account with the ladies going to the tomb and not finding the body is Mark 16. And then verse 6, the moment comes when these women enter the tomb and they see the slab where the body should be, but there is no body there. And their bewildered expressions are seen with bemusement by the angels who say to them, what, what, what is the problem? Why are you upset? He is not here. Clearly, he is risen. Behold where he's supposed to be. In Luke's account, they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you looking for a living person in a place where only the dead should be? He is not here. He is risen. Look here where he's supposed to be. And yet it's not anymore. That is the ultimate text of comfort. That is the angels telling you, you have won. Alex said it either here at the end of his class, I don't remember. I have the class on Revelation starting this coming Wednesday night. And yet, it is a book about how we will win. But you know, not to spoil the book for you, the book is about how we already have won. We, we are winners. And the devil is a sore loser, and he will keep attacking us, and he will even kill us. But all he can do when he kills us is get us home faster. We have won. And that's what that song lyric reminds us so let's consider that because he lives i can get through this church family because he lives we can get through this and because he lives calvin and his children can get through this and we can help them because he lives number one i can face tomorrow 
Now, when my master uses the word tomorrow in Matthew 6, 34, he means literally the next day. He's talking about the people who are worried about what will come, from our perspective, Monday morning. And he's specifically speaking about worrying about the next day until you get to the next day, and then what do you do? You worry about the next day after that. And you're always one day ahead, full of worry. And he has to shoot that down, and he has to say, that should not be how you live your life. He says, you should take no thought for tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take thought for the things of itself. And then he says, sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. And I think we understand the big picture of what this text is talking about. I imagine if I asked you, your translation may vary slightly, but it's basically the same thing. If I asked you, what is he saying here in general? I think we would all agree he's saying, don't worry about tomorrow. Are we all in agreement that's what he means? Don't worry about tomorrow. That's absolutely true. The problem is when we try to break down this text piece by piece, that we realize if I just take this verse out of context, boy, Jesus sounds really cynical. If I take this verse out of context, he sounds very glass half empty. Because it sounds like the application I'm supposed to make. It sounds like what I'm supposed to get from this is, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough problems. Well, that doesn't sound like what my master would say. It sounds like he's saying, if you worry about tomorrow, all the problems of today will drown you. And you've got to focus on all the problems today and think of all the problems today. Does that sound right to you? That doesn't sound like my master. He is not a pessimist. He's not a cynic. He's not a glass half empty kind of person. So what is he really trying to get me to understand? For that, you have to put the verse back in his context and go to Matthew 6.33, the verse just before it, where he says, you seek first and foremost, primarily, above all else, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. What things? The things he just got through talking about previous to that verse, where he says, take no thought, there's the phrase again, for what you will eat where you will sleep, how you will be comforted. Take no thought for the provisions of life. He's thinking about godless people. He's thinking about people who have no faith. He's thinking about people who have no hope. He's thinking about people who have no God. And because of that, they worry, where am I going to get my next meal? How am I going to be comforted? How am I going to be sheltered? How am I going to be taken care of? I've just lost a loved one. How am I going to get through tomorrow? And he says, here's how you get through it. You seek first God and his kingdom, and his righteousness. And all that you need will be taken care of. You will be taken care of. There are a lot of people in this room and watching online who are hurting right now. And the common thought that people think when they lose a loved one, it's a different experience for everybody. But the one uniting thought is they have to come to the realization that I have to live without this person for the rest of my natural life. That is the tomorrow that our beloved Calvin woke up to this morning. This was his tomorrow. How is he getting through this tomorrow today? With God, his kingdom, and his righteousness. He's going to get through it with God, who is ever reliable. He's going to get through it with God's righteousness. God will take care of him. But there's that other one. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He's going to get through it with the kingdom. Who is the kingdom? We are the kingdom. And if Calvin is going to get through this, and if we're going to get through this, it's because we're going to get through this together. He is going to need a family. 
his big church family. And with our help, all of us will face tomorrow. We can't do that at all, though, if not for the king. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Because the king lives, we can face tomorrow. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day, the song says. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its clouds may turn to gray. I don't worry over the future. For I know what Jesus said, and I know he'll walk beside me, for he knows what is ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know he holds my hand. As the song we're considering says, how sweet to hold a newborn baby, a new life, the beginning of life, and feel the pride and joy he brings. But greater still, the calm assurance this child can face uncertain days until the end, because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Second point, because he lives, I can die. Now I need to explain what I mean by that because it doesn't make much sense if you don't understand my thought process. Presuming that the Lord does not return in our lifetimes, everyone in this room will die. Okay? We will die. Again, if Jesus doesn't come back before the last one of us is gone, every one of us will die. But I didn't write because he lives, I will die. No, there's no comfort there. That's just a fact. I said, because he lives, I can die. Now, what does that mean? You have to put yourself in the mind of a child or put yourself in the shoes of a parent of a, of a small child. A small child is only just learning what things he can count on or she can count on. They will always happen. Things that we take for granted. For example, something as obvious and simple to us as the sunrise. A child may come into your room in the middle of the night, refusing to go to sleep. Why? Because it's dark and it's scary at night. Well, just lay down and go to sleep and the sun will come up tomorrow. Well, how do you know? The child says innocently. And we laugh at that. Well, of course the sun will come up tomorrow. I'm 36 years old. It's never not happened once. But this child is six years old. A much smaller window of time. For all he knows, the sun only comes up for 10 years and he hasn't hit that mark yet. He doesn't know yet. She doesn't know yet. They have no frame of reference big enough yet to have certainty that the sun will come up tomorrow. So what do we say to that child who has that, that I don't want to say faithlessness, but just that, that failure to grasp the reality? What do we say? We say, you can go to sleep. We know they will go to sleep. Eventually, their body will give up. Their eyes will fall. They will go to sleep. But we're trying to give them the reassurance that they can go to sleep. You can close your eyes. You can dream sweet dreams. And when you wake up, you can experience a new, bright, shining day. You can. Christian, listen to me. If Jesus doesn't come back in time, you will die. If you're a Christian, you can. You can die. You can die. It's going to be okay. You can close your eyes and you can dream sweet dreams. I can die. Now listen, let's understand this in a different way. I used to be dead. 
And that's probably what makes it so I can have so much confidence in my own future death, because I've already done it once. There's no greater way to get over something than to experience it. Well, I've already died. You see, I sinned, and because I sinned, I put myself to death, spiritually speaking. And it was Jesus who brought me back from the dead. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You has he quickened, the King James says, brought back to life. From your trespasses and sins. You sinned against God and you put yourself to spiritual death. And he brought you back to life again. So you've already been dead once. In Romans 6, verse 2, or 6, verse 1, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then Paul says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You used to live in sin. And now you are dead to sin. You used to be dead in your sins. You were dead because you were a sinner and you were shackled to sin and Satan had the other end of the chain and he wasn't going to let you go. He wasn't going to give you the key. In fact, there was no key. You could not unlock that chain. You were locked in. But it's only thanks to Jesus Christ that those shackles are broken and you can be freed. But You were once dead. I was dead spiritually. I'm saying because I have been dead spiritually, and because through him I am now alive spiritually, this physical body, now I can die physically and be okay with that. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt to lose somebody. It means I have the perspective to see beyond the immediate pain to the great glory that awaits on the other side. Because he lives, I can live. And I can think of no better verse to really power home that point than the end of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of death itself will not stop it. I am going to build a place where the people who have been freed from Satan's shackles can reside together, a family under one roof forever. And they're going to kill me. And in so killing me, I will build that church. And their killing me won't stop me from building that church. The gates of death itself of the grave, literally the word means, will not prevail against it. Why? Because he prevailed against the grave. And because he lives, I can die. Because he died and rose, I can die. Because I know what comes next is a resurrection. It is not possible for death to hold him down. Peter says, Acts 2.44. The same is true of me. It is not possible for death to hold me down anymore because I'm in him and he lives. I can die. With that said, how? I can die with gain. Alex preached this last week, Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I live on this earth, I'm going to live the way Jesus wants me to live. I'm going to do the things Jesus wants me to do. I'm going to work the way Jesus wants me to work. I'm going to serve the way he wants me to serve. For me to live is Christ. But if they take my life, they don't win. I win faster. For me to die is gain. I gain reward. I gain victory. Final, eternal. Put my cross down. Pick up my crown. Victory. I gain when I die. I can die with blessing. Revelation 14, 13. The Holy Spirit tells John the writer, write this. You write this down, John. Write this to those Christians in those seven churches, many of whom are faithless or losing heart, or losing hope, while their brethren are suffering and bleeding and dying, and they're thinking about giving up, you write to them and you remind them that blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. You remind those faithless ones that if they stick it out and they lose their heads, they win their crown. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth, 
and their works do follow them. They'll rest from their labors. Here they are, they're living the life and they're doing it faithfully and they're giving it their all and they're going to be killed for it and they're going to go in the ground and what's going to be left of them? A body in the dirt? No. No, a lot more to that person exists than a body in the dirt. We are not going to bury in a few days Amy Fairchild's soul. We are not going to bury Amy Fairchild's memory. We are not going to bury her warrior spirit, her fighting heart, her compassionate soul. We are not going to bury her boundless optimism. We will carry those things. Her works will follow her, but we will hold on to them too. And we will remember them. And we will tell our children about them. And we will be comforted and encouraged and motivated through someone's work like that. And when she has now left, and when she meets her maker, as she's already done, her works have followed her there. Her body she's left behind. But what is a body? It's nothing. It's flesh, blood, and bone. It's a shell. The real Amy Fairchild has met her maker and her works have followed her. She's been told, well done. This is not a eulogy. We'll get to that in a couple of days, I'm sure. This is just for us to be reminded that when we die in a condition as she was in, in a condition she was in spiritually, we die with a blessing too. And I can die, I want to read this one to you, with comforting assurance. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I think on the screen behind me, it's, it's verse 14, but I want to start in verse 13 because that was the text that was read to us a second ago. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. Context, Paul is writing to the church of Thessalonica, a people who had the misunderstanding that Jesus was about to come back. They thought the Lord was about to return. And so they, they thought, oh no, many things they had misunderstanding about that. We've got to quit our jobs, sit on our roofs and stare at the sky. But they also had this idea that, oh, my grandmother just passed away. Oh, I just lost my son. I just lost my wife. I've just buried them. And now Jesus is going to come back very soon. I just know he's going to come back next week. I know he's going to come back next year. And I just lost my spouse. So they're not going to get to see it. Because I buried them. And so that means that's it for them. That was their misunderstanding. And so he has to write to them to say, no, they will see it. How so, Paul? 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I don't want you to be unlearned, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Circle that word. That you sorrow not, like the others who have hope, no hope would sorrow. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not, the King James says, prevent, go before, proceed before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then which we are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so because of that, he says, comfort one another with these words. This text is not a resurrection, this text is not a second coming text. This is about the second coming. Paul is using the second coming, but this is not your text to go to when you want to know there's a second coming. You can use it for that, but that's not the point. The point of this text is to gain comfort over your dead loved ones. Your dead loved ones are not going to miss the second coming. Your dead loved ones are going to rise to see the second coming. And they're going to rise first because we're all going to go up to see them in the air. And they have to rise first because they're six feet below us. So they've got to catch up to us. 
They get a head start. And then we all go together to meet the Lord in the air. The comfort is not just in knowing he's coming back. The comfort is in knowing we're all going to be together when he comes back. A family reunited. We're going to put a body in the ground. That soul belongs to God. And he who owns that soul will put it back in its body. And all of ours too. And up from the grave we will rise to meet him in the air. Because he lives. We can die with this comforting assurance. That we will see each other again. That death is not the end. Or to put it poetically, then one day I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory. And I'll know He reigns because He lives. I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. I have one more text to share with you before we close. It's one of my favorite miracles, if not my favorite miracle, that my master does. Follow along with me in Luke chapter 8. And I'm going to jump in just right in the middle of it because there's so much text. In fact, I'm going to preach this more properly in, in a few weeks when we have our series on faith. But look at Luke 8, 49 to start with. Through almost the end of the chapter. Luke 8, starting in verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, be of good comfort. I'm sorry, Luke, yeah, 8, 49. Luke 8, 49. While he yet spoke, there came one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Master, the daughter is dead. Tro- oh, the daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. Now, I don't know what your translation says, but I'll bet you not a single one of your Bibles says she will be raised from the dead. Because if it does, that's a bad translation because that's not the words the master said. What the master said was, you're all crying, you're all upset that this person has died. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. She will be healed, is what he said. She will be taken care of from her illness. That's the mindset of Jesus. This is a dead person. And he says, it's okay, she'll recover. She's dead, she'll get over it, is what he says. So keep going. Verse 51. When they came to the house, he suffered no man. He allowed no one to enter except for Peter, James, and John and the father and mother of this dead girl. And everybody was weeping and everybody was was bewailing. And he said, weep not. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And your Bible says in the next verse, they all laughed him to scorn. Because they knew she was dead. And medically, scientifically, physically, she was dead. And if you put it to Jesus in those meager, minor terms, he would agree. But he wasn't thinking of things in such a small view. He wasn't looking at her physically. He wasn't seeing her medically. He wasn't considering her scientifically This is the maker and master of the universe. He sees a dead girl and he says, oh, she's just sleeping. And when they scorn him and they mock him and they faithlessly disbelieve him, he kicks them all out of the room. And he grabs her cold hand and he says, girl, get up. And up from the bed she arose. But notice the way Luke writes it. The doctor, Luke, 
Verse 55, her spirit came again as she rose straight away and he commanded to give her meat. Breakfast, essentially. Because all she was to him was sleeping. Now, had I been in that house and if I had grabbed that little girl's hand and if I had said, girl, wake up, she'd still be there. She'd still be dead from my perspective. She'd still be medically, physically, scientifically dead because I can't resurrect her because I don't own her soul. But the one who had command over her soul could pluck it out of heaven and put it back in her body and tell her to wake up. And up she woke. And that's why Jesus said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. A phrase which has since then came to be understood as a Christian synecdoche for death, as a Christian idiom for death. When a Christian died, the first century brethren referred to them as dead. You saw that in the text we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't want you to worry about the people who are asleep. Those who are asleep will rise. Asleep to a Christian is death. Death to a Christian is asleep. And we've gotten away from that. I wish we would say that again. Our sweet Amy is asleep. Now, I can't wake her up because I don't control her soul. But I know the Master, and He holds her soul. And on the final day, He will put that soul back in that body. Reconstitute, repurpose that body to make it so that it can rise up again. And then she will meet us, and we will meet Him in the air together. Because she is not dead. She's just asleep. And he can wake her up as easy as I can wake up my children when they are just asleep. That's the power of the resurrected master. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I'm okay to die. I can die. Now I want you to take this. And the cliche is apply it to your lives. Well, here's how you apply it. I'm going to tell you how to do that. You take this and you gain comfort from it yourself. And then you take it in word and in deed, and in attitude, and you show it to Calvin and to their family, and you give them the encouragement. Because we know, we know Calvin. We know how strong and faithful he is. We also know how strong and how faithful Amy was. And now there's a hole in that house. We are his family. We're going to do our best to fill that hole of faithfulness and strength and optimism, and reliance on God. A brother's hurting. Let's show him what, what a Christian does with that. He lives so we can face it together. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're here and you're listening to this, and you're not a child of God, the devil owns your soul. And one day death will come for you. And if it does, and you have not made that right, if you have not taken advantage of the redemption of Jesus Christ, you not allowed him to buy back your soul, then your soul will belong to the devil forever and ever and ever. Amen. But if you turn to Jesus Christ and you give him your soul and you put your sins to death in repentance and you bury them in the watery grave and you rise to walk a new life, he now owns your soul. And when you die, you just go to sleep and he will give you life again one day. If we can help you obey the gospel, if we can help you turn back to faithfulness, anything we can do. Let us know right now as we stand and sing. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay 
upwards of I think it's ninety nine cents a month. So if you can if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's you know it's not easy. But if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor a n c h o r dot f m slash Matthew M a t t h e w dash Martin four one four and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.